Hello, everybody. Glad to see your smiling faces. We are in Numbers, chapter 35. I never really contemplated preaching through the Pentateuch uh, until it kind of came to that time. But, uh, you know, uh, I believe that uh, all of Scripture is inspired by God. And I think when Paul said that, uh, he was talking about the Old Testament, uh, at least preeminently uh, the uh, Old Testament. He said, all Scripture is God-breathed. That's how the NIV puts it. And it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that the man of God might be adequate and equipped for every good work. You know, but the, the thing that we're looking for is not to just learn facts of history, but to learn about the redeeming grace of God and seeing that grace of God at work throughout history. That's, that's really where you get the... Uh, you know, uh, the juice out of uh, the Bible is when you see the redeeming grace of God at work um, in the lives of his people. And that's the, uh, the blessing of expository preaching. Numbers chapter 35 to 36 brings us, of course, to the close of the wanderings of Israel. And it's time to take possession of the land of Canaan. Chapters 32 to 34 gave a series of instructions about the upcoming inheritance that God was about to give to his people. I'm having to work through a bunch of things. My sister and I together are co-trustees for my dad. So we're having to go through all of this stuff. And it's really kind of a pain uh, having to walk through this and talk to probate lawyers in Nevada for things that were not put into the trust. And, you know, uh, just a lot of details to try to administer an inheritance well, that's what God does here in the book of uh, Numbers. Is he says, I'm giving you instructions about how you're supposed to carry out your inheritance. And it continues here in chapters 35 and 36 with three special instructions on how they were to carry out the inheritance. Well, uh, like usual, because it's kind of a large chunk of narrative, we're going to uh, try to read through it and uh, uh, look at the big picture and then extract out the... Uh, Marrow. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. One of those uh, Puritans, you know, I think it was uh, Thomas, uh, let's see, who was it? The Marrow of Theology. We've got to think which Puritan it was. Oh, well. Chapter 35. God gives instructions about a special group of cities called the Levitical cities. Now, earlier in the Torah, uh, which is the uh, five books of Moses, uh, so they call it the Torah, which means the law, or really Torah means the instruction. And so that word Torah is used to refer to the first five books. Sometimes it's called the books of Moses. Sometimes it's called the Pentateuch, meaning the five books of Moses. But we've learned in our uh, previous studies that the tribe of Levi had a special role in overseeing national worship. The Levites were going to be in charge of the entire sanctuary. Uh, the Levites were kind of the, char uh, the tribe in charge of worship. And of course, the family of Aaron came from the tribe of Levi, and the priests had to come from the family of Aaron. So they had this special role, and God told them, I am going to be your inheritance. So all of the other 12 tribes are going to get a land inheritance, and they're going to be farmers and have their land inheritance. You guys are not going to get a land inheritance. I am your inheritance. And God said, the way that you are going to be supported because you can't really generate your own income, it's going to be through the 
tithe system of the nation. So we see, of course, the same thing happening with uh, you know, the body of Christ. Paul gives instructions about supporting people who dedicate their lives to uh, the ministry of worship. Same thing happens here. Eugene Merrill comments on this. He says, The tribe of Levi, whose inheritance was the Lord, uh, and the ministry of the tabernacle, the Levites did not receive a tribal allotment, yet they did receive some land and some goods so that they could function in a practical way among the tribes. So the solution for this was the appointment of 48 towns throughout the land of Israel, where the Levites could be widely distributed throughout the whole land, and from which they could serve the Lord in Israel. So we read about this beginning here in verse five, verses 1 to 5. Let's read about it. Uh, yeah, okay, had a typo there. Uh, now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan, opposite Jericho, saying, Command the sons of Israel that they give to the Levites from the inheritance of their possession cities to live in, and you shall give to the Levites pasture lands around the cities. The city shall be theirs to live in, and their pasture lands shall be for their cattle and for their herds and for all their beasts. The pasture lands of the cities which you shall give to the Levites shall extend from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits around. You shall also measure around the city on the east side two thousand cubits, and on the south side two thousand cubits, and on the west side two thousand cubits, and on the north side two thousand cubits, with the city in the center. This shall become... Uh, theirs, the pasture lands for their cities. So what we see is that God's plan for the Levites, again, is that they would get spread throughout all the land of Israel, and that even though they would not have a large land inheritance, they would have these special cities with uh, a certain portion of land that surround their cities. Why is this? They got to live. <laughs> yeah? People who give their lives to the ministry, you know, pay, have to pay bills and buy food and buy diapers Man, we bought a lot of diapers. I sure am glad that uh, I don't have that primary responsibility anymore. Hey, Heather, Kara. <laughs> the worst decision we ever made is when we said, hey, let's be economically uh, friendly and use cloth diapers. Oh, that was, that was, don't ever do that or let your kids or grandkids ever try to do that. Oh, man. But anyhow... We, uh, we gave it our green effort, you know. But the point is this, is that the Levites needed houses and animals uh, and everything else, just like everybody else. So God commanded a system that would provide for the people who dedicate their lives to the ministry of the gospel. Keep your place right here. They said, this is a, this is a universal principle. So look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 for just a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Corinthians. That's because we used to have this guy in Las Vegas on the radio, and that's how he would say it, some radio preacher. Corinthians. Chapter 9, Paul says this, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. Now what he's going to do is he's going to chastise the Corinthians for their bad attitudes towards him, and he's going to chastise them for the idea... They just had, they had all kinds of attitudes, you know? It's really sad that, you know, there would be attitudes coming from within a church to somebody that poured their life into uh, serving them. And um, 
So this is dealing with support and attitudes and support. So what he says here, he says, listen, uh, I may not be an apostle to other churches, but I am to you. There are other churches that Peter started or Matthew or somebody else, but he says, you are my baby. I gave birth to you in Christ. Uh, You are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. But guess what? There were people that had attitudes toward Paul. Can you imagine that? I guess they had attitudes toward Jesus too, right? So we should not be surprised. They had an attitude that certain people did towards Paul. And he says, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and of the brothers of the Lord and of Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? So there were people who were criticizing Paul in the way that he supported himself or took support from the church. Verse 7, who at any time serves a soldier at his own expense? Hey, if you're in the army, they pay you. Uh, Who at any time plants a vineyard and does not eat from the fruit of it? Or who tends to a flock and does not use the milk of it? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? In other words, am I just kind of giving you some kind of human kind of opinion? He says, no, there's biblical principle behind this. This is not only a human opinion. Or doesn't the law also say these things? For it is also written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. So in the, in the Torah, in uh, you know, the book of Deuteronomy, God gave a commandment that if your ox is out there working in the field, it gets to eat. Okay. Now, interestingly, Paul says, God is not concerned about the oxen, is he? Well, he is concerned about the oxen. This is, this is a Jewish way of speaking to say, no, the real point here is this. He says, is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake. Because the plowman ought to plow in the hope and the thresher to thresh in the hope of sharing the crop. So, he says, if we sowed spiritual things among you, is it too much that we should reap material things from you? Listen, we poured our lives out so that you could know Christ. So it's like the, the, the minimal thing would be that you would help support us. If others share this right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we didn't use this right, but we endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel. You know, Paul seemed to have some, a little bit of a sense of the uh, finickiness of the Corinthian uh, church. And so, you know, for quite a bit of the time, uh, maybe forever, he never took support from them. As soon as he got, in Acts 18, as soon as he got to Corinth, uh, what did he do? He went to work making tents. Now, it says that when uh, Timothy came down from Macedonia, there was a large group of support that came from uh, Timothy from Macedonia, which probably would have been dominantly from Philippi, it would appear, uh, but it could have been Thessalonica too. But Timothy brought down a huge offering to help Paul. And so that freed him up so that he could dive into full-time work. So he only worked as long as he had to. When there was support for it, he gave his energies fully to the gospel. And he didn't take anything from the uh, Corinthians. Verse 12 says, we didn't use this right. We didn't want to cause a hindrance. I have a right to be supported from you guys, but I didn't take it. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple. That's how it works in Israel in the priesthood. They eat the animals. They get to have steak every day. Steak, lamb, mutton, you know, because that's part of their payment is living from the sacrifices. 
So verse 14, the Lord also directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Now Paul goes on to say, I didn't use these things because I just didn't want to have this be a hindrance with you guys. But I had the right to do it, and this is the way it's supposed to work. So what we have here is a situation that in the Old Testament, God is providing for those that have dedicated their lives to the tabernacle, to the worship, but he spread these people out all over the cities, all over the land of Israel. Basically, God said, I'm going to give you guys, you know, so to speak, you know, your pastors are going to come and be living throughout the whole city. Now, there were 48 of these cities, uh, four of them that are kind of well-known cities. One of them was a place called Anathoth, just a couple miles, about five miles north of Jerusalem. Who was a famous guy that came from that? Ba-na-na. Who came from Anathoth? All the money in my right pocket for those who can say. Got to check first. <laughs> Jeremiah. Jeremiah was from Anathoth. Jeremiah was a priest. Another famous uh, city was Bethel. Another one was called Nob that was just kind of like on the other side, kind of like up on the edge of the Mount of Olives. And then another one was called Shiloh. Uh, Shiloh is kind of in central Israel. Shiloh is where the Ark of the Covenant was located when you know, they came running back and, and Eli was there. And they said, oh, guess what? The Ark of the Covenant has been stolen. <laughs> he had a heart attack or a stroke and you know, fell backwards and died. You know, But uh, anyhow, verses 4 to 5 give us the dimensions of these cities. Uh, when we look at the dimensions, you might say, man, this is kind of hard to figure out. Sounds contradictory. It's not contradictory because it's making statements that are like one verse after another. So it's not contradicting itself within the space of a single verse. But the outside edge of the town, so if, just think about a town in terms of it being a square. And then on the outside edge of the town on each side, uh, it was surrounded by 750 feet on each side. So here's the town that is a square, and if you come to one side, there's 750 feet of uh, pasture land, and that's true on each of the four sides. But the town itself was about 1,500 miles in 1,500 miles square. So what you end up with is 3,000 feet from you know one side to the other square. 3,000 feet from one edge to the other. And on the inside, it's 1,500. So 1,500 feet, what is that? Roughly, that's about, maybe let's just say in round numbers, a quarter mile. You know, it depends upon if you're using a cubit that's 18 inches long. But more or less, it's a city that is one cubic mile big. Not cubic, excuse me. One square mile big. So that'd be like going from right here to, I don't know, maybe... Uh, uh, not quite, maybe the shopping up here at uh, King Super, further than the 7-Eleven down here, maybe Colorado College, quarter mile, think drag racing. Okay, but ancient cities, ancient towns were not very big, but that was the size of the Levitical cities, and this was what God uh, gave to them uh, as their inheritance. The placement of these cities were throughout the nations so that they could be there to administer the worship of God all throughout the city. And that's why God made this provision. And, you know, this is exactly why God does the same thing in the church today. God gives commandments about how uh, the church is to have 
the worship of Jesus Christ. Uh, he gives instructions about supporting the worship of Jesus Christ. You know, some people don't want to talk about that or preach about that. I don't think we should spend all day long, you know, talking about preaching every week. But this is something that comes right out of the passage, so that's why I'm giving it to you. Preaching, teaching, prayer, planning, coordination, visitation, administration. That's why we need workers who can dedicate their time and their energies to the gospel. Same thing was true back then. So here, as one writer explains it here, these are the final instructions for establishing a religious and social infrastructure for the nation. Now, there are 48 cities total, but in verses 6 to 34, we find out that there's special purpose for six of these cities that are scattered throughout the nation, and these are called the cities of refuge. In this section, we learn about six special cities that were scattered throughout the land of Israel. Three of them were going to be on the east side of the Jordan, three of them on the west side of the Jordan. And these six cities were places where you could have protection if you accidentally killed somebody. Um, here's something you have to understand. In the ancient Near East, uh, and still in, in many parts of the world today, here's how it works. If you have brought a death to some, some individual, some family member of theirs is going to chase you down and kill you. They're called the blood avenger. Now, the Hebrew word for this, uh, who, who knows what the Hebrew word is? The goel. Oftentimes we call the goel the redeemer, right? So you think, like, for example, that word is used in the book of Ruth when we're talking about the Boaz was the redeemer for Naomi and Ruth. So Boaz came in and said, hey, I'll bail you out. I'm rich and I'm single. And Ruth, she's a pretty good looker. She needs a husband, I'll marry her. Naomi, I'm gonna mortgage your property out. And that's basically what it did. He mortgaged the property of Naomi out so that she could get cashed out. Now, remember the way that it worked is that at the end of the year of Jubilee, at the end of the, uh, in the 50th year, property that had been redeemed through this kind of a mortgage, I'm using the word mortgage, but uh, property that had been redeemed would revert back to the original family member because you never wanted the family uh, the property that was supposed to be in that tribe and that family to ever leave it. So that's how it would come back into the family. Well, Boaz was one of those Goel redeemers, but the same word is the word that is used and it's translated a blood avenger. So, you know, if I accidentally killed, you know, somebody, you know, uh, you know, I dropped, uh, you know, I dropped a brick off of the top of the uh, roof, you know, kind of like the book of, uh, not book of, the movie uh, Ben-Hur. Ben yeah, you know, whoops, you know, the brick came falling off and, uh, you know, it wasn't anybody's fault. It was an accident, yet, you know, Ben-Hur got uh, sold as a slave in this thing. To, that was a way to get rid of him. But if Ben-Hur had, you know, accidentally, uh, you know, injured somebody or killed somebody, well, the family member would come, come after him and say, you know, you killed my, you know, father, prepare to die. He got it. Did anybody else get that? Thank you. How many of you didn't get that? <laughs> it's a movie called The Princess Bride, where this guy is hunting down the guy that killed his father. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. 
So that's kind of like a famous line from it. Okay, but that's what the uh, Blood Avenger did, okay? So if you accidentally kill somebody, you would go to one of these cities for protection. Uh, and we're going to read about that right here in verses 6 through 8. The cities which you shall give to the Levites shall be six cities of refuge, which you shall give for the manslayer uh, to flee to. And in addition to them, you'll give 42 cities, the other cities, to the Levites. All the cities you shall give to the Levites shall be 48 cities, together with their pasture lands. As for the cities which you shall give from the possession of the sons of Israel, you shall take more from the larger, and you shall take less from the smaller. You shall give some of his cities to the Levites in proportion to his possession which he inherits. 48 total, six cities of refuge. And a good way of looking at this is that they were a voluntary uh, prison system for the protection of the guy that accident, accidentally killed somebody. A voluntary prison system, because he didn't have to go to the city of refuge. You could stay right there in your hometown. But if one of the family members, and usually the family member was the closest, to, the closest male to the one that got killed, but if the blood avenger comes after you and you're there in your hometown, he can take your life. Now, you know, we, we think about this the way it works today. What happens, uh, you know, I mean, a year ago, you know, I uh, caused an accident. It was my fault. I did not see a car coming. I pull out. Thank God the people in the other car did not get injured. Uh, it was a brand new car. It was a test drive from a dealership, you know. Every airbag went off it, and the whole thing got totaled, you know. Um, but, man, I am so glad that somebody in that other car did not get injured. You know, I got, you know, some injuries, uh, but uh, that's life, right? But, you know, if I had caused injury to these other people, uh, there, there would be some potentially some either criminal or civil liability on me. Might have caused a death. That's serious stuff. And so the, the issue about the precious value of human life comes out in all of this stuff that, you know, even if you uh, didn't want to kill somebody, even if it wasn't murder, and it was an accident. There's issues of guilt that come out in all of this. But God gave very, very righteous and merciful ways to handle these things. So it's a voluntary prison system to go through a trial process. Verse 9, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select for yourselves cities to be your cities of refuge, that the manslayer, um, the Hebrew word comes from the verb Ratzach, Ratzach, to slay or to slaughter. And interestingly, this word can refer to either, contextually, either to manslaughter or literally to murder as well. The same word can be used for either. But these cities are for the refuge so that, verse 11, the manslayer who has killed any person unintentionally may flee there. The city shall be to you as a refuge from the avenger. That's the word goel so that the manslayer will not die until he stands before the congregation for trial. The cities which you are to give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities across the Jordan, three cities in the land of Canaan. They are to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the sons of Israel and for the alien and for the sojourner among them, so that anyone who kills a person unintentionally may flee there. So, you know, God is wise and he's merciful and he's just. Legal systems don't operate perfectly. 
They, they simply don't. You know, sometimes we call it a justice system. There's a whole lot of times it's not a justice system. It's simply a legal system. And, you know, I mean, we look, as we look at what happens in our society, you know, one thing that we can say happens a lot of times is that people who intentionally do evil, nothing happens to them. So the legal system doesn't bring justice. It just basically, uh, you know, is a legal system. Yeah, there are other times, uh, I know people that have literally done nothing and gotten dragged through the legal system. When they literally did nothing, you go, wow, this is really terrible. God's justice system in the Old Testament was uh, righteous, it was wise, and it was merciful. Now, you may look at this and say, gee, it didn't really, maybe it didn't address every kind of thing. I don't know if you can address every, I don't know if you can address every single thing in dealing with the fallen world. I honestly don't. But it was righteous and just. Think about it in this way. Every person is qualified for this legal system, whether you're an Israelite or a foreigner. It applies equally to everybody. God also made it accessible because three of these cities were in the land of Canaan. The other three were placed on the other side of the Jordan River where you had two and a half tribes take their inheritance. So it had accessibility. On the east side of the uh, Jordan, you had the towns called Bezer, Ramoth, Gilead, and Golan. And then on the west side, it was Hebron, Shechem, and Kedesh. But they were only designed for temporary situations. Here's how it worked. If you did something, you know, again, you maybe, uh, maybe you dropped something off a roof and it hit somebody. Maybe somebody started a fight with you. And, you know, you guys got in a fight and this, this guy died, you know, punched him in the nose and, uh, you know, he had a brain hemorrhage. You didn't want to kill him, but it's not exactly your fault that this thing happened, okay? So you accidentally kill somebody, you flee to the city of refuge to avoid getting killed by the blood avenger, and then they would eventually go back to the city where the death took place, and they would hold a trial in your hometown where these things took place, wherever it took place, to determine uh, what the situation is. Now, if you had, in fact, personal guilt in causing a death, but it was not murder, after the trial, the city of refuge is where you could go back to and stay and be safe from the blood avenger who was uh, uh, you know, out there to try to get to you. So you go through the trial process. Uh, they say, well, okay, yeah, uh, this guy really got killed and he was involved in it. But clearly it you know, was not a premeditated thing. That avenger could still come after you. It's just that you were found not guilty of murder. You can go back to the city of refuge and stay there. The blood avenger, if you did not go back to uh, a city of refuge, the blood avenger could hunt you down and kill you. If you wanted protection, you had to stay in that city. So it's addressing issues of justice and issues of mercy as well. Look at verse 16. The next situation is if it was an actual case of premeditated murder. Verse 16, but if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he's a murderer. And interestingly, again, this word here in this usage is the same word, rosach, same word uh, that you had for manslayer, but contextually we're seeing 
a different meaning for this term of having slaughtered somebody. He's a murderer if he struck him with an object, like an iron axe. The murderer shall surely be put to death. If he struck him down with a stone in the hand by which he shall die, uh, by which he will die, and as a result he died, he's a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. Or if he struck him with a wooden object in the hand by which he might die, and as a result he died, he's a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. The blood avenger, the goel, himself shall put the murderer to death. He shall put him to death when he meets him. If he pushed him out of hatred or threw something out at him, uh, lying in wait, and as a result the man died. Or if he struck him down with his hand in enmity, and as a result he died, the one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He's a murderer. The blood avenger shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. Verses 16 to 21 make it very clear that premeditation and intent are a huge element of what defines something as being murder. This would include uh, maybe the use of some kind of weapon, you know, an axe or some kind of thing like that. This would also include lying in wait. So I'm going to wait. I know this guy is going to be walking down the path right here. As soon as he comes out, you know, I'm going to strike him. So premeditation and intent uh, are a very, very big issue to determine murder. A word that's used nine times just in these uh, short little section right here. If the evidence shows that it was premeditated murder, there is no option at all. Now, I'll tell you what. This is where when you look at you know, what happens in Western culture, there is just so much violence and murder that takes place all the time. And our system just says, oh, well, that's too bad. And a whole lot of times, these guys get off on uh, you know, uh, legal technicalities and stuff like that. Or it becomes nothing more than, you know, kind of a slap in the wrist to the people that have uh, been murderers with uh, very, very clear intent, you know? But when we look at stuff that happens, you know, I mean, I, you know, this is how I see it. I think you may feel the same way. Some of you may not. But when you see, you know, where things like, okay, this guy went out and just slaughtered people, you know, let's, let's make sure that this person really is guilty of what they did. But let's put them in front of a firing squad next week. Or let's hang them publicly next week. I'll tell you what, you would watch the rate of violent crime plummet. It wouldn't make it go away because we're living in a sinful, fallen world. But if you don't, you know, in Ecclesiastes 8.11, Solomon says this. He says, when the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, the hearts of men are given fully to do evil. And this is exactly what we're seeing right here. You know, a couple of years ago, uh, when uh, all these riots were taking place, and they were killing people in these riots like two summers ago, and, you know, burning down, you know, homes and burning down businesses and all this stuff going on. And it's when we went on our men's retreat, and that some men were discussing that topic, and one brother who uh, had been in uh, the military said, tell you what, you know, if uh, these people are burning down and attacking and beating people up, you know, if the police put a couple bullets into some of these heads a couple times, they'd disappear. Now, you, you, you might look at that and say, yeah, but that's not really bringing the full justice process. I don't want to debate that anymore. I'm throwing stuff out there, and you may say, well, I don't agree with you. But 
you get a point here? The Bible says if you have somebody that has demonstrated to be a criminal doing it with evil intent, especially the taking of human life, there's no option on this. They must be put to death. But in the absence of factors that left it as manslaughter, uh, the absence of fact, uh, the, the absence of these factors left it as manslaughter. So you have to demonstrate that it was indeed a premeditated murder. God gave a good system to provide order and justice, and I would venture to say it's one that's better than ours. I think, you know, um, you know, the people that formed our country were really wise in watching how wicked, abusive kinds of uh, governmental things operated in England and in Europe. You know, it's kind of like, okay, uh, you know, we're going to have a trial uh, so that we can hang you before uh, lunchtime, okay? It's like, wait, we didn't even have the trial yet, and you're already, you know, ready. So, you know, we know that this is how it operates in a whole bunch of the world. So we have a system that really helps to protect people. Praise God for that. One writer by the name of uh, Dennis Cole says here, ultimately the city of refuge was provided for the safety and well-being of a person who had caused the accidental or unintentional death of another. These cases were not excusable, but God gave a way of not allowing just a full-blown kind of retaliation against somebody who didn't really want to do it. And interestingly, God even provided, as we're going to see a little bit more, that one of the ways of dealing with things like this is there could be a ransom take place. A ransom, a fine that would go to the family to make atonement for the guilt that took place in the manslaughter. So if I accidentally, you know, caused a death to uh, Ron's family, and, you know, Ron is the manslayer and he's coming after me, uh, and it shows that it was not murder, one of the ways that this could be resolved is I could actually pay a fine to Ron's family, and Ron and his family say, okay, all right, we'll consider that payment for your crime. Now, the word for ransom that is used here, as we're going to see in a minute, is the word kofer. So now we, we know that uh, there was a special sacrifice that happened one day a year, what was called Yom Kippur, same root word, the word kafar, to make atonement. It's a word for atonement, because the idea of atonement in the Bible is the idea of substitution. Yom Kippur is the day of the substitute sacrifice where God will remove the wrath from the whole nation because the substitute sacrifice has taken place. And so the word ransom here is the word kofir that is the word that means a ransom price or a payment, a fine. You could, uh, you could use a fine for basically any kind of sin, including manslaughter, except never for murder. Never, ever murder. God says, no, a murder must be executed. Look at verse 22. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity, so here you are, accidental manslaughter. If he pushed him suddenly without enmity or threw something at him without lying in wait or with any deadly object of stone and without seeing it dropped on him so that he died while he was not his enemy nor seeking his injury, then the congregation shall judge between the slayer and the blood avenger according to these ordinances. The congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the blood avenger, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with holy oil. But 
if the manslayer at any time goes beyond the border of his city of refuge to which he may flee, the blood avenger, uh, if the blood avenger finds him outside the border of his city, and the blood avenger kills the manslayer, the blood avenger will not be guilty of blood, because he should have stayed and remained in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer shall return to the land of his possession. These things shall be for you a statutory ordinance to you throughout your generations in all your dwellings. This is very interesting stuff. Even if you really were not a murderer, but you caused this death, that guy could come after you. Even after the trial showed that you were not doing it out of intent. So, Remember how it works? First thing you do is you go to the city of refuge. Um, if you're shown to not be a murderer um, after the trial, uh, but the manslayer is still after you, you can go to the city of refuge and find safety, and they cannot come after you. As long as you stayed in the city of refuge, you were safe. But if you left, it was open game. Now what makes this whole thing even more interesting, as we see right here, is that you had to stay there in the city of refuge until what happened? The death of the high priest. The death of the high priest means everything is completely absolved. Gee, I wonder what this points to. <laughs> look with me at, uh, keep your place right here, but go with me to the book of Hebrews. First of all, look at, with me at Hebrews chapter 6. In Hebrews uh, chapter 6, uh, we read, eh, here he's talking about the absolute certainty of God's promises in Christ. And he's talking about the fact that if God has promised something, it's immutable, it cannot be changed. Verse 17, in the same way God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath, in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope that is set before us. He talks about here fleeing for refuge. You know, the word uh, for fleeing for refuge is the word fugo. We get the word fugitive from it. So fugo, and then this is an intensified word, kata fugo. So it's the idea of like just running and fleeing for refuge. When you come to Christ and you flee to refuge for Christ, God says, I will give you eternal forgiveness. Never, ever, ever shall a pinprick of my wrath touch you because you fled for refuge. Jesus is our city of refuge. That's exactly what the book of Hebrews is bringing out right here. And then it also tells us that he's the city of refuge, but we know also that Jesus Christ is our high priest as well a point that the book of Hebrews brings out over and over again. So look at chapter 9 of Hebrews. Notice here in chapter 9, verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. In other words, Jesus didn't go into the earthly temple. He went into the presence of God the Father. Now, that's what the high priest would do when the high priest would bring offerings on the Day of Atonement. The high priest would go into the presence of God with the Ark of the Covenant. But the book of Hebrews says, yeah, but 
Christ went into the very presence of God the Father in heaven. And when he did this, verse 12, it wasn't through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, not an animal, but with his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. When he died, it gave us past, present, and future eternal forgiveness. But not only has he died to pay the price of our sins, but also he conquered death and resurrection, and he's alive forever right now. And it says that he intercedes for us and mediates. Go back to chapter 7. Notice here on verse 24. Christ, on the other hand, because he lives forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, because he lives always to make intercession for them. Our high priest has paid the price. The guilt is gone forever. Amen? Verse 30. Having dealt with unintentional manslaughter, Moses now returns to this issue of how to handle premeditated murder. Verse 30. If anyone kills a person, the murder, and again, it's the same word, ratzak, uh, contextually here is talking about a premeditated murder, the murder shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. Moreover, you shall not take the ransom for the life of the murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. So there's that word kofir right there. You shall not take ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge that he may return to live in the land before the death of the high priest. So you must not pollute the land in which you are for blood talking here about murderous blood. Blood pollutes the land. I wonder how God looks at America. I wonder how God looks at America with 60 million plus babies murdered. These people may not realize that they're murdering a human being. I, I think there are some people who don't realize what, what's, what's happening. I think that's a fair statement. There's a whole lot that do, though. And whether you realize it or not, that is murdering a human being. I wonder how much pollution there is when God looks at America. It is a lot. No expiation can be made for this, uh, the land, for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. There is only one substitution when somebody murders, you must die. This is not, oh, you know, and the liberals, you know, they have a hissy fit over this. Oh, you're such hypocrites. You're against abortion, but you believe in capital punishment. No, this is not at all hypocritical. It's it's justice. This is God-given righteousness. If somebody is a premeditated killer, they must die. This is what God says. And that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 9. Verse 34, you shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I the Lord am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. You've got to make sure it's genuine, fair, and legitimate trial. But if it is, put them to death. Cannot even go to the city of refuge. They, had, they would have to turn them over. Cannot pay a fine. They have to be turned over. Why? Because ultimately the land of Canaan was God's land. God says, I am Yahweh. I am the holy God. Um, I dwell in the midst of my land. So there's two attributes as we close here. 
two attributes of God that really come out in this legislation. One of them is the attribute of holiness, but the other one is mercy. You know, Simon was talking about that this morning. You've got a God who is holy, but he's also merciful. And both of these things really come out as we think about uh, these uh, instructions right here. That brings us to a final unit we're going to look at here just over the next couple minutes. And that's chapter 36, a third special instruction. This one here goes back to Numbers chapter 27. If you remember, there were a group of women called the Daughters of Zelophadad. And what happened back in Numbers chapter 27, they said, hey, Moses, we have a problem here because our dad didn't have any sons. And um, so all of the land inheritance, you know, uh, we don't have a provision where it can come to us women, the daughters. This is not right. And God, Moses went to God and said, uh, hey, uh, they have a complaint here. And God said, they're absolutely right. <laughs> you know, now, this is just the way it worked, right? Inheritance went to sons so that it would stay in the name of the family and the tribe. So that was the way of preserving the land and the family. But the daughters come and say, well, this is not right because we didn't have any brothers. So God said to Moses, they're right. So here's a provision. The daughters can inherit the land of their father. But then there's another problem right here because if the daughters go out, you know, if the daughters come from the tribe of you know, uh, Manasseh, and then they start going out to marry somebody from the tribe of Judah or something like that, what's going to happen is eventually that is going to end up in the name of their husband and that other tribe. Then the tribal land that was supposed to stay in that family and tribe forever is now going to get lost. So the daughters come with this, not a complaint, but it's just a question of saying, this is not right. They were not even doing this really on their own behalf or their own selfish reasons. They're just saying, there's a problem here. We have to address a second issue. So verse one, the heads of the fathers of the households of the family of the sons of Gilead and the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of the sons of Joseph came near and spoke before Moses and before the leaders of the heads of the fathers households of the sons of Israel. And they said, the Lord commanded my Lord to give the land by lot to the sons of Israel as an inheritance. And my Lord has commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, to his daughters. But if they marry one of the sons from the other tribes, the sons of Israel, their inheritance will be withdrawn from the inheritance of our fathers and will be added to the inheritance of the tribe to which they belong. And thus it will be withdrawn from our allotted inheritance when the jubilee of the sons of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe to which they belong, so their inheritance will be withdrawn from the inheritance of the tribe of our father. I kind of explained to you the basic issue, okay? If you marry another tribe, the land is going to disappear from your own family. So they presented their case. Verse 5, Then Moses commanded the sons of Israel, according to the word of the Lord, saying, The tribe of the sons of Joseph are right in their statements. This is what the Lord has commanded concerning the daughters of Zelophehad, saying, let them marry whomever they wish. Only they must marry within the family of the tribe of their father. They can marry anybody they want, but you've got to keep it within your family. Well, I think it's interesting, first of all, I brought this up to Rebecca the other day. I said, look at this. You know, because usually we think about it like, oh, women didn't have any freedom or privilege or right to do whatever they want. It's not always like that. I think we sometimes overstate that idea in many parts of the world, and including the Old Testament. God says they can marry anybody they want, but because of this inheritance issue, they're going to have to marry a cousin. Now, this could be like a second cousin or a third cousin. 
but basically within the family. All of this is going to preserve the inheritance. Verse 7, Thus no inheritance for the sons of Israel shall be transferred from tribe to tribe, for the sons of Israel shall each hold to their inheritance from the tribe of his father. Every daughter who comes into possession of an inheritance of any tribe of the sons of Israel shall be wife to one of the family of the tribe of her father, so that the sons of Israel may possess the inheritance of his fathers. Thus no inheritance will be transferred from one tribe to another, for the tribes of the sons of Israel shall each hold to his own inheritance. God gave a a really good solution. Once again, he's really smart. (laughs) It was a good solution. Verse 10, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so the daughters of Zelophadad did. Machla, Tirzah, Hogla, Milcah, and Noah, the daughters of Zelophadad, married their uncle's sons. By the way, there is a name in there. You see the name Tirzah? Remember that that was one of the names, the sister from Ben-Hur, right? Yeah, and it was a city in Israel. There was a city called Tirzah as well. But anyhow, they married their uncle's sons. They married those from the families of the son of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained with the tribe of the family of their father. These are the commandments and ordinances which the Lord commanded the sons of Israel through Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan opposite Jericho. Guess what? Numbers actually ended on a happy note. (laughs) There was a a lot of stuff throughout those 40 years. But it actually ends and it says, a good happy note. That's nice. You know why? Because God's grace was at work. So in closing, throughout our study, you know, I'll tell you what. And this is what you brothers and sisters, what you really need to understand. You, you need to see that God's always gracious. You know? It's not just, we, we don't learn about grace just by reading a theological statement in Ephesians 1 or 2. You know? His grace is always there. His goodness, his wisdom, his mercy is always there. And uh, this is the uh, kind of God that we can trust, we can cling to. There may be times when we say, this hurts, I don't understand it, it's hard for me to keep trusting. But he's good, and he's wise, and he's sovereign. Amen? Amen? Thank you, Lord, for this study to remind us about your greatness The greatness of your wisdom and your power, your sovereignty, your grace. Thank you for allowing us this time. We uh, ask you to apply these things to our heart, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.